Hello and welcome to Navarra FM. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny. From the race science of the 1600s to the taxonomies of the British Empire to the diversity checkboxes of today, racial categories shift all the time, from place to place, across moments in history. So why do so many people still think of these categories as natural? According to writer Sita Balani, the answer lies in how the making of race, gender and sexuality are all closely tied together in the efforts to make all of them seem biological, authentic and inescapable. Discourses of sex are always already about race and racial differences are constructed along sexual lines. Sita Balani is a fellow of the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences and a lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. Her new book, Deadly and Slick, Sexual Modernity and the Making of Race, charts this entangled history. It takes in sex work in colonial India, anti-miscegenation laws, man camps surrounding mining projects, modern moral panics about jihadi brides, and the work of an 18th century Swedish botanist. In this episode, we unpicked those stories and asked how we find new understandings of sexuality and deviance in a time of global upheaval. Sita, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me how you came to this sort of central dilemma that you outline in your book of, I guess, what is so robust and sticky about the way in which we think about race as this sort of natural category? I suppose the book and that thinking came out of watching two processes in the kind of transition from being a young person to being an adult. And the first was the meteoric rise of gay rights. So from the kind of end of the 1990s till now, we've seen a really radical um, shift in how we understand sexuality and how LGBT people function in the sort of broader polity. And I found it interesting to watch that happen at the same time as all of these transformations in the making of race. So thinking about the way that the category of British Asian, the category that I'd found myself in for all of my childhood, became sort of fractured through the war on terror. And of course, it had never been a homogenous category, but it was fascinating and disturbing to watch Muslim become a racial category through the war on terror. Um, And so watching that between the ages of kind of being like 10 or 11 and then up until being an adult, it seemed to me that these processes were very much connected. So, of course, we had uh, Jasper Pouar talk about homo-nationalism, and that seemed like one way of connecting them. But it seemed to me that we could go a bit further than that, and it seemed to me that that robustness that you talk about, that way that race seems to constantly renovate itself to keep itself looking and seeming natural, that that seemed much more connected to sexuality than I had first understood. Uh, in fact, it seemed like sexuality was what was making it robust. Um, and so I found that writing about that in the contemporary never quite got me to the place that I wanted to get to, which was to try and understand um, that relationship more fully. And so that kind of took me back into thinking uh, about the history of that and how it how it emerged. Can you give us a sense of um, how those sort of racial categories have shifted depending on the sort of various and changing needs of of empires big question I know but like when we come to um racial categories that we're so used to talking about it we maybe forget that these are constantly fluid constantly um well uh, fickle if you like yeah absolutely I think that I think when we track those changes we can see that there's a kind of capriciousness Mm -hmm. uh to governance as a sort of um idiosyncrasy as well as a kind of um intention behind the making of, of race and so 
If you think about colonial India, which is where I draw a lot of my examples, you can see that someone who might be categorized as a member of a criminal tribe, like that idea in, it, in that language is no longer with us, but the idea of criminalization still is, right? So the idea that there are inherent criminals, that's still with us in more subtle language if you think about the language of the gang, um, the way that certain uh, people are assumed to be closer to criminality. That's an old colonial idea, but the language of it has been renovated uh, in the same way that in colonial India, the British were terrified of this practice they called thuggy, which was just like criminal gangs, basically. Um, and they understood this to be a sort of cultural practice, a kind of racial practice, um, bound up with a particularly violent iteration of Hinduism. And then they used all the same kind of ideas to make the category of the terrorist. So that that categorization of this kind of violent religious fanatic has been moved from one religious group to another, but the same sort of method is used. So I think we can see that race can be uh, used in these very opportunistic ways. It very much strikes me as, as something tied to the heart of, of this idea of statecraft, which you use a lot in your work. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and that you talk about its improvisational quality as well? We often think about the state's power in ways that make it seem almost a kind of totality. Like we can't, there's nothing about it that's not determined in advance as though it's uh, this kind of dangerous authoritarian parent figure that can determine everything about our lives and of course the state has tremendous power but the way that it uses it is often uh, a bit yeah improvisatory so it will try and solve one problem and it will create another so um to give an example in the context of british government governance of the subcontinent there was some need for men doing the work of building the empire. They, they thought that men needed to have wives, in essence. They needed someone to do their laundry, someone to have sex with, someone to cook for them, someone to look after them if it got too hot, if they got sick. And that was understood to basically be a wife. Uh, but they didn't want European women to, to go out there uh, and do that because it would have been expensive. So they thought, well, there are already women here, we'll use these. And that seemed like it solved the problem. So statecraft is also sometimes a question of working out who should have sex with whom. And, um, and they solved that, but created a new problem, which was that men started to like their concubines. Um, and they'd have children with them, and then they'd sometimes want to send those children to school in Britain. And they'd suddenly created a new problem for themselves because they didn't want to have lots of children with claims to both European and Indian parentage running around the world. Um, and so that's kind of what I mean by improvisatory. Like they, they solve one problem and then they create another and then they have to solve that problem. So there's this constant urge to sort of double down on the particular utility of different racial categories, like at the time in that place. But then if you turn one dial up, you suddenly change a load of factors because people are people and this is kind of a chaotic process. Yep, exactly. And I think that sense of, of race making as, as chaotic is really important. So one of the things that makes it seem natural is the idea that, for example, when you look at all the boxes on a form that you definitely and inevitably fit into one of them, that you can pick which one from that list and there will be something on that list that is appropriate. Um, and actually, it's all much more chaotic than that. And that we need to kind of remember that it takes these improvisatory processes 
in order to remember that it can all be undone. You start off by um, noting the sort of language of intersectionality that I think we're all pretty used to by now. The idea that who you are exists at the intersection of your race, your ability, your class, your gender, all these kinds of different factors. It's kind of been deracinated very much from its origins in uh, like black feminists cultural and political studies and now we kind of refer to people as intersectional kind of elliptically and um, very obviously bizarrely you kind of take a step away from that and, and think about I guess the sort of bounded or like Mobius strip quality of these processes of gendering sexualization if you like and racialization so can you talk to me about those like how those linkages sort of come to be yeah absolutely so I did I've always found that intersectionality is much too flat it um it's too close to the logic of the diagram I think which mm. is kind of how British Empire tried to work in the first place so in some ways there's an element of the master's tools I think even in that concept I find it more useful to think about these categories as coming into the world together mm. as always inseparable from each other uh, and I use this this term of the Mobius strip of culture and sexuality and the way that they seem to be kind of sewn together so that at one moment you think you're looking at culture and the other moment you think you're looking at sexuality, but actually they sort of function together. So it's largely impossible to think about sexuality outside of culture. And sexuality is always used, I think, as the preeminent example of cultural difference. So the way that people organise kinship, the way they organise family life, whether people have love marriages or arranged marriages. These are understood, the way people treat their women, all of this is understood to be the heart of what cultural difference is made of. So I think that's how race gets gets kind of constructed and it doesn't make that much sense to me to try and separate these things out. In fact, I think what we need to do is try and come up with some ways to understand them together, which is unfortunately much more difficult, but it is, I think, the task um, that we're faced with because I think otherwise, if we do allow them to be separated out, it's much easier for one to be used against the other. It's much easier for sexuality to be used against race or feminism to be seen as an as the antithesis of other forms of struggle for example so you use this framework of sexual modernity can you give us a clue as to what you're pointing at there with that term i use the term sexual modernity to try and suggest not that there's a kind of sexual modernity and a different another modernity that's not sexual <laughs> but to suggest that sexuality emerges with modernity and by that I don't mean that no one was having sex before obviously they were nor that people didn't have any conception of themselves as sexual beings because of course they did but this idea of sexuality as being at the heart of the self mm. that sexuality is a thing you possess that's unique to you um, that's yours in some way rather than you just have sexual behavior and you engage in sexual acts that's a kind of modern a modern situation um kind of the, the person who's written about this in um, in the most memorable way is Michel Foucault uh, and he his conception of sexuality as kind of coming into being through confession through medicalization of sexual acts through the criminalization of certain forms of sexual behavior he thinks of that as kind of integral to modernity and so I sort of draw on his ideas but I think one of the limitations with Foucault is 
well, there are two kind of significant ones, I think. The first is that even though he writes about all of these things that are happening at the height of European empires, they get scarcely a single mention um, in his writing on sexuality. And the other is that he sort of assumes that what's true for men is true for women. So he assumes that confession, medicalization, the family structure domesticates and produces sexuality for men and women in the same way. And it seems pretty obvious that that's not the case. So Silvia Federici, a uh, Marxist feminist scholar, asks the kind of great question, which is like, what, what would happen if we took the witch hunt rather than confession as our central technology of the making of, sec of sexuality of sexual subjects? So I think I tried to sort of put those two things together and say, what happens if we think about sexual modernity not from the perspective of the kind of European lower middle class subject that becomes uh, subject to these technologies of sexuality. What if we started with what's going on in the colonies, what's going on with gender in Europe, what's going on in a much more global sense? So for me, this idea of sexual modernity takes up two registers. There's the promise of sexual modernity, which is the promise that we can find ourselves as individuals that we can self-realize through the pursuit of romantic love, of the couple form, of the nuclear family, of domestic life. And I think more recently we've seen that renovated so that you can now, the idea might be that you might self-realize through sexual adventure or through crafting your authentic gender expression. And these are things that we are sort of conditioned to assume might give us that feeling of satisfaction or completion or transcendence. And the other side of that, and incidentally I'm not saying any of that's a bad thing, only that it might limit our conception of what's possible as well as enable certain possibilities. But the other side of that is what I think of as the underbelly of sexual modernity. So sexual modernity is not just this promise. This promise depends on all kinds of illicit, clandestine or exploitative practices. So sexual violence has not gone away with the promise of sexual fulfillment, right? Sexual violence is as widespread as ever, if not more so. So we see that sexual violence uh, attends all kinds of infrastructural projects, mining, any kind of extractive industry. You see around that uh, forms of sexual violence become endemic. So there was a report in Canada about so-called man camps um, around big extractive projects like mines and pipelines and the ways in which Indigenous women in particular are targeted for sexual violence, targeted by men who work in those industries. And that that's kind of totally well known, very common, everyone knows about it, everyone talks about it. Similarly, you see in colonial India, as I've, I talk about in the book, the organisation of state-regulated sex work. Um, and so it seems to me that this is a kind of underbelly of sexual modernity, the illicit and clandestine and also modern practices uh, that form the other side of that promise. So the promise is available for some and for others. It's, people are kind of consigned to, being, uh, to inhabiting that underbelly. What is it about sexuality in particular as this kind of powerful way of like persuading ourselves to understand ourselves in this in, according to these sort of taxonomies and this sort of promise of of authenticity more so than kind of I don't know other kinds of sensory experience or behaviors like what flavor ice cream you like right um why is it that that a is so effective and, and b is is such a preoccupation by people who are engaging in statecraft 
yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I guess sexuality works on this in this way for two reasons. The first is, of course, procreation, right? So sex as a technology of actual reproduction means that it's tied to racial categories precisely because race is understood to be hereditary. So other technologies, other kinds of categorization are not. So one can convert to a religion, one can gain a nationality, but race is understood to be something innate, something that you inherit. I understand there's a kind of minor skirmish over the idea of transracial identity, but perhaps we can just leave Rachel Dolezal out of it for now. Yeah, let's leave her at the door. Um, so that's one of the reasons I think that the state is so interested is partly because in order to control populations, you need to control things like health, you need to control domestic life, you need to have deep control over the labour force. And that means controlling population and controlling population also means controlling the individual at the level of their sexual behavior so that's kind of one side of it but the other side is we do experience sex as deeply personal deeply individual very much part of what makes us human what makes us who we are and my aim in this book is to sort of along with I don't know someone like Herbert Marcuse to say like what would happen that we need to think about how that's used against us in order to think about what the possibilities might be in sexuality as something other than that. Something rather than seeing sexuality as this kind of uh, this thing that's the intrinsic heart of the subject, the, the truth of who we are. If we could free it from that, it could be something much more exciting. Let's roll back a little bit to um, one of the origin stories that that you outline here. Um, taking your cue from um, Carl Linnaeus and a lot of kind of Victorian gentlemen of a certain class sort of fussing around with like bean plants mm -hmm. and the kind of patterns of hereditary there. And then we end up uh, in this very prolific, promiscuous, if you like, form of science, which is eugenics and has this massive, of course, impact on global history, not just reaching its apotheosis, of course, in the Nazi death camps, but also having this uh, deep impact on the ways in which we understand the world to be fundamentally arranged. So for me, one of the things, one of the real kind of light bulb moments when I was doing the research for this work was in reading about Linnaeus and the categorization of plants. So when we think about racial science, we often think about Darwin and Francis Galton and that whole family of uh, very dangerous characters who've <laughs> determined so much um, of, of the history of science and indeed the history of how we understand ourselves. But prior to that was this Swede called Carl Linnaeus who um, was engaged in the question of taxonomy. So taxonomy is a big question in the 18th century. And Linnaeus hits upon something that I think has been much more significant than has been given sort of full credit for. So the Linnaean system of taxonomy is the one that we use today in effect. Um, if you've heard anyone say animal, vegetable or mineral, that's him, that comes from him. So he, other people had observed that plants reproduce sexually, but that sexual reproduction of plants is always a bit of a projection of human ideas in the sense that all plants are kind of, uh, have both sexual parts. So they do produce sexually, but they are 
there was a real tr- a lot of trouble in the 18th century because no one wanted to say that plants were, to use the terminology of the time, hermaphrodites. That was awkward because it didn't sit well with the kind of social construction of gender. And Linnaeus just really takes it up and says, plants reproduce sexually, they have male and female parts. And crucially, he uses that as a way to determine how to organise plants. So plants become organised first by their male parts, imagine all of this in quotation marks, um, the stamens, and then that determines the class, and then the order is determined by their quote-unquote, female parts, the pistols. And this was one of many systems floating around at the time, and other botanists thought this was nonsense. Um, uh, Another botanist said it was just a language. It didn't tell us anything about plants. It just was a way of talking about them that didn't get us any closer to kind of understanding. But nonetheless, because of the way it reflected the kind of emergent understanding of the social division of labour, the gender division of labour, of the idea of companionate marriage. This system of understanding plants is the one that we've been stuck with. But what I noticed and what I thought was important was that the understanding of plants as defined by their sexual characteristics also tied in with the understanding of humans as determined by their sexual characteristics. Um, And in that kind of, uh, in the space between the two, we have the determination of different species of animals according to the same logic. So it seemed to me that that was an important antecedent to the kind of Darwinian story uh, that's been so important to the making of race through eugenics. You talk about the ideas of gender deviance and sexual deviance very much bound up with ideas of racial deviance and as a process of constructing the thing that they're supposed to be deviating from, which is you know proper like upper class, quote unquote, white, like colonizer masculinity, if you like. So how do those processes feed into one another? Yeah, the construction of the the norm, I suppose, against which these things are measured is this idea of the white bourgeois man. But the white bourgeois man takes a lot of work. It's not a it's not an unmarked figure. Mm. It's a figure entirely reliant on all of those cast out of that category. So in the colonial context, that white bourgeois man would not last five minutes without <laughs> all sorts of other characters to, uh, as I've mentioned, to do his laundry, cook his food, but also to function as the kind of masculine others um, against which he understood himself to be uh, a kind of figure of respectability. And so there's all of these attempts to maintain this this scrupulous distinctions of race, um, but they all require cross-racial contact. So this idea of, of racial difference usually involves lots of engagement between people of different so-called races, and that that's always dangerous if you're trying to conserve racial difference, because what has to also be conserved is hierarchy. So when, for example, uh, increasing numbers of European women do uh, end up in colonial India, There's all this work that has to go into ensuring that they can maintain their position as the bearers of the white race. So 
the freedoms of European bourgeois women in colonial India are very constrained. In some ways, they've got more freedom than they'd have back in uh, the metropole. But in other ways, their lives are totally confined to the home and the European social club. So if you've ever read Orwell, if you've read Burmese Days, you'll mm. have a good sense of the ways in which women are kind of all they can do really is be stuck in these very constrained, banal environments, but constantly feeling that their purity, their integrity is under threat by the natives. Um, and so the control of, of white women's sexuality in the colonies is very important. And indeed, crises emerge when there's a sense that, that uh, that's being threatened in some way. So uh, the story behind the kind of big uprising in 1857 that the British like to call the mutiny um, was assumed that uh, the dignity of European women had been put in danger and as such forms of much more aggressive uh, governance needed to be imposed on the colonies. There seems to be this constant anxiety about miscegenation in this context, and precisely because there is so much contact and so much like direct dependency, both conceptually and literally, mm -hmm. on people who are racialized. And you can see sort of different um, ways in which the state from far off in the metropole is very concerned with the detail of who is having sex with who and how and how often and when, et cetera, et cetera, in the colonial periphery. I, I'm wondering if they're also concerned with with love, I guess, and kin-making as well as sort of sex and reproduction. Yeah, there is an element of that. And it seems to be a concern that um they only have kind of belatedly and they try and they try and work out in advance how they can determine the emotional lives um, of the men that are out there building the empire. And of course, you can't really do that. So that's one of the sources of great conflict. Um, and that's why they introduced the registered prostitute system uh, in colonial India in an attempt to make sure that those sorts of that kind of kin making doesn't happen. Um, so it's understood that it would be safer uh, for working class men in particular in colonial India to simply visit native prostitutes, but that they have to crucially be different to the sex workers seen by native men. So they have to organise a kind of two-tiered system of state-regulated sex work uh, in the hope that that will undercut uh, any possibility of long-term unions in which love, affection, kinship, family, domesticity would come to threaten the fiction of racial superiority. I'm fascinated by the way in which you talk about this sort of differentiation, stratification of, of different gendering processes of different racialized groups in kind of comparison to one another, um, as well as in comparison to whiteness. I'd love to get an idea of, I guess, what that looked like in the on the ground. So I think one of the things that we often assume is that a set of bourgeois ideas were imposed on, on other people as a thing that people should actually be. But in fact, the, the gendering and the making of gendered subjects in Europe was also the making of a, a new set of gendered subjects elsewhere. And so, for example, uh, as part of that same system of the, the registered prostitute in colonial India, it was assumed that all... Indian women were potentially sex workers, so could at any moment be stopped and um, 
forced to submit to an internal sexual examination by the colonial police because it was understood that that was a possibility and that they needed to be checked for disease. And this is all happening at the same time as part of the Contagious Diseases Act. But at the same time, the Contagious Diseases Act is put into motion in Britain too, in the, in the British mainland, where there is no such law, um, no such possibility of an enforced sexual examination of anyone without any sort of evidence. They can't, you can't, that's not a possibility. And so that tiny distinction is actually an enormous uh, technology of making gender subjects. And I think that if we look at those details, we can see that it's perhaps not such a kind of um, linear or singular process. I'd like to talk for a minute, if we may, about that kind of construction of, of, of sexual violence as well, this kind of um, the underbelly. The language around man camps is, of course, interesting because it frames the sexual violence endemic to these massive extractive projects or infrastructural projects or military projects as sort of being a function of, well, there are a lot of men there, so what do you expect? Right. But the way in which we understand male violence or violence enacted by men is always already like deeply racialized mm -hmm. as you as you discuss so i think uh, one of the ways that i've been trying to understand how these forms of sexual violence take hold is to think about them as coming as following the movement of capital so if we think about those extractive projects um or the arrival of an army base somewhere so in Kenya, for example, there's a British army base that has massively transformed the local economy. The entire local economy is organised around that base now, right? So the entire local economy has been disorganised and reconstructed around the arrival of capital in the form of the British army. Um, and so then the murder um, of a Kenyan woman, Agnes Wanjiru, uh, in the hands of a, a British soldier, to me seems like better understood as the result of that kind of process of radical social and economic disorganisation and reconstruction around the needs of the what is still in some ways an imperial centre. Um, and similarly, the flight of capital can have the same effect. So um, I talk about... Uh, organised sexual exploitation in the book around um, in, in northern towns in Rotherham and Rochdale and elsewhere. And while that's, of course, been a kind of a story used to further demonise a Muslim community, we should also be serious and sincere about the fact that organised sexual violence does happen. And it often happens in places that have been deindustrialized, that have seen the flight of capital, the flight of investment, organised state abandonment. And in that context... Actually, it makes it's people are left with an economy organized around very little. So, of course, tight small businesses, things like taxi firms and takeaways, become the social hubs of a place. And if there's no state investment in state services, young people, especially young girls and women, are left without any kind of a safety net. And so, I think rather than seeing these things as simply the function of masculinity, I think they follow the movement of capital in ways that we could perhaps pay more attention to. Mm. 
I'm interested in how you tie together the sort of disciplinary function of the family and the disciplinary function of these forms of sexual violence that are always understood as kind of exterior to it and also necessitating like further reinforcement of this, the family as this like protective unit. The disciplinary function of the family, I think, is an interesting one because it's been such a source of a tremendous volume of feminist analysis, and I think for absolutely good reason. Um, and I think for me, one of the things that's been interesting is to return to uh, black British feminist thinking and writing about the family, someone like Hazel Carby, for instance, or to think about Amrit Wilson's writing on the family or Pratiba Palmer's writing, and think about the way that the family is absolutely a technology of um, that organises social reproduction uh, in ways that women's labour is kind of... Um, recruited unpaid and this is essential to women's oppression but I think it's also important to note that the family is a much more differentiated thing than that mm. and that the nuclear family is only one version of events and that in the logic of uh, British statecraft and British governance. Actually, the extended family is understood to be this very dangerous thing. So lots of the immigration regime is organised around trying to turn extended families into nuclear families because the extended family is thought of as a kind of kinship that might be a rival to state power. The nuclear family can be much more... Uh, easily managed by forms of governance, right? So things like benefits can be paid to the nuclear family that can be organised in a particular way, much easier. The whole history of the male breadwinner family is nuclear. But the idea of an extended family is understood to be much more threatening. Um, and so, for example, you, you know, you can only sponsor the visa of someone that's your immediate kin. You can't sponsor your cousin's visa, for example. Mm. Um and so that, to me, seems kind of worth remembering, partly because it also draws attention to the way that other kinds of kin-making are assumed to be dangerous. So um, the idea of the gang. So the gang is understood uh, to be a, a racial a racial category. Uh, we most commonly associate it with blackness, with black masculinity. Um, but we also have this idea of the grooming gang, which is understood to be a kind of South Asian or particularly Muslim thing. Um, but in the 90s, there was also this idea of Asian gangs um, as groups of young men engaged in kind of petty crime. Um, Claire Alexander wrote a brilliant book called The Asian Gang. And it was understood to be organised around a sort of mindless loyalty, around a form of clan-like authority, quite similar in lots of ways to the language which the extended family is talked about. So all of these are ways of doing social reproduction wrong, right? Organising the making of your life, your intimate connections wrong. And so the nuclear family is absolutely a site of women's oppression, but it's also under I think it's also important to understand that other ways of making connections, other ways of living are also uh, understood to be dangerous by the state. Mm. There's that kind of conceptual discipline, I guess, whereby the, the nuclear family operates as a sort of racial shibboleth or something by which cultural practices and difference is measured. Yeah, absolutely. So we can even see this in a very recent example um, when the pandemic hit 
and the racial disparities in infection rates and rates of death were described in cultural terms through the intergenerational family as this dangerous way of living. And that explained why South Asian people were overrepresented uh, among those uh, most uh, deeply affected by the pandemic. And that was assumed to be a kind of cultural factor. Uh, they do kinship wrong. We do. If they lived in nuclear units, then this wouldn't be happening. No mention of the rental crisis in that, of course. <laughs> of course. There does seem to be this, this deep imbrication of this kind of biological understandings of like how people arrange themselves sexually and in terms of kinship and a constant paranoia with virology, basically, this mm -hmm. idea of contamination, which has this sort of literal function and a sort of like cultural preoccupation as well. Yeah, I think there's a story about race that sort of took hold, which was that it was understood through biology, uh, or first it was understood through anatomy, and then biology, and now it's understood through culture. But actually, I think that the biological was always cultural. The story of culture was always there from the very beginning. And so it hasn't, it's not that culture superseded a story about biology. It's that the two are constantly reinforcing each other. I'd like to turn to maybe more 20th and 21st century histories and talk a little bit about moral panic over a kind of welfare queen, perhaps in the language of the states, and the idea of like the benefit scrounger, this sort of uh, racialized and also classed figure of this like overly fecund woman who is a threat to the state in some way. Mm -hmm. I think that was a moral panic that New Labour made really uh, effective use of. Uh, New Labour, I think, really renovated the moral panic to more fully organise it around sexual factors. So we saw that the, the folk devil of the benefit scrounger often bled into the folk devil of the bogus asylum seeker, um, often fed into the folk devil of the teenage mum. Teenage pregnancy was this huge concern of um, new labour. But one of the things that once I did a bit of digging, I realised is that it was also in its way a racial panic. So they were only really concerned with uh, young white women uh, having babies as teenagers. They commissioned a piece of research by the Department of Health. So this was funded by Tax, taxes, which I thought was quite something. To when I when I read this research, it was really quite extraordinary paper that could have been written by the ethnographic minds of the British Empire mm. 150 years before. And it said that it, it tried to determine the effect of teenage pregnancy on different on the economic productivity of different racial groups. So it organised race into being these. Uh, different categories based on how what the norms for kinship were in that group. So they said that um, Indians were closer to the white norm than Pakistanis and therefore had less teenage pregnancy, but that teenage pregnancy was more dangerous for white women than it was for Pakistani women because Pakistani women got married younger and so were already organised into domestic units. And this was research done... I think at the end of the 90s or the early, or maybe in 2001. So this is very recent mm. um, work that really does work seamlessly along the lines of colonial racial logic, of the logic of 
a kind of ethnographic state that assumes it can use this sort of spurious anthropological knowledge to determine, for example, who has access to state welfare. And it very much strikes at what you were talking about earlier about this sort of fracturing of the category of British Asian that goes alongside you know, the sort of state multiculturalism under New Labour and also, of course, the panics around the war on terror after 2001 that seems to kind of be very much linked as historical processes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, um, because the story of 9-11 has come to kind of... Uh, really dominate our historical recollections of 2001. One of the things that gets missed is how important um, the the riots in Burnley, Bradford and Oldham were earlier that year, which really put a dampener on um, Tony Blair's election to a second term in office. So we saw that those uh, moments of kind of civil unrest had very obvious uh, roots. If you, if anyone cared to go and find out, you could see plummeting house prices in Burnley um, meant that lots of Asians who'd bought their houses were left in negative equity and couldn't afford to move. And that gets re-narrated as people living parallel lives in which they never meet anyone of a different racial background, purely out of a kind of self-segregating logic of um, a sort of cultural intransigence. Uh, and so the Cantle Report comes up with this idea about parallel lives um, and a documentary about the riots uh, on Channel 4 later that year was called Culture Clash. So this idea that there's some sort of cultural clash, some kind of clash of civilizations, to use Samuel Huntington's phrase, comes in to kind of explain uh, explain things before the war on terror, it really fully kicked off. It's already there in state multiculturalism. And then the war on terror kind of picks up that logic and really runs with it. What does that look like in terms of how black Britishness is pitted against or understood as is in some ways op oppositional to Hindu and Sikh, Asian Britishness or Muslim Britishness and that kind of thing? It's... I think important to remember that race is always made in dialogue, right? So one of the, I think, very uh, dangerous things that's been, or perhaps just unhelpful things that's been imported from American race politics is a kind of obsession with or reliance on the notion of whiteness, um, which I think it's not that useful to to find yourself always thinking in that relationship. Um, not everything is made purely in relation to so-called whiteness. And I think in Britain, um, the British establishment has been really, really good at pitting uh, racialized groups uh, against each other. And so there was this kind of uh, notion that blackness was defined by criminality the asianness was defined by culture and that these things kind of move around so they're not we're not all people don't live in totally separate categories there was a kind of moment in the war on terror where it was as though all at once the british establishment realized that people who weren't south asian could also be muslim and they had a kind of panic about that and had to renovate some of their uh, approaches and policy so i think these things are always happening in a kind of fractious dialogue. Um, and our job 
is not to get drawn into the terms of that dialogue, but to try and take a step back and understand it to be a sort of tool of governance, right? The divide and rule isn't always going to happen in uh, very like stark and obvious terms. It will happen through that granular attribution of cultural difference. I'm particularly interested in how you outline the construction of like uh, the sexuality and genderedness of brown women versus the implicit threat of the dangerous brown man. Yeah, there was always this story that of you know Muslim women need saving, of the the Asian woman as submissive, and these things obviously bleed into each other, but aren't totally um, the same the same story. And that is like a long, old story that we can trace back to colonial panics about sati, about uh, widows uh, throwing themselves on the funeral pyres of their uh, departed husbands, sort of thing that did happen a bit, but nowhere near as much <laughs> as in the febrile imagination of a colonial administrator. But the, that story of needing saving... Um, I think is changing. I think we're seeing it shift in front of us. So I think that one of the things that has happened um, over the course of, of the war on terror, and now we're shifting, I think, into a different a different moment, is this shift from Muslim women need saving to nobody needs saving, that you can all fend for yourselves in the face of uh, brutal devastation. And I think that the figure of the jihadi bride has been uh, very kind of um, pivotal to that shift. And um, that's another one you should imagine in quotation marks if you're listening. Um, I think it's an important term, though, because it brings together these two kind of scary sounding constructions like jihadi with its uh, has kind of come into the language as this kind of terrifying, foreign, warlike idea. And then bride sounds also kind of anachronistic and like a kind of uh, a gender politics we'd prefer to forget um, unless it comes in the form of like don't tell the bride or something kind mm -hmm. of fluffy reality tv version and so I think that the rise of um, women in the west going to join Islamic State has really thrown the story of um, saving brown women from brown men to use uh, Spivak's iconic phrasing um has really turned that into a kind of problem for the british state which can no longer rely on that and doesn't want to rely on it anymore uh and instead there's a sort of implicit suggestion that if you didn't want saving and you made choices to not be saved by our vision of sexual modernity then it's up to you to survive um i think that's been quite an important shift i'm i'm interested by this just stark contrast between um how both of these interpretations of, you know, what a brown woman's sexuality must be like and how it must operate both function as a process of bordering. You talk about virginity tests applied in the sort of late 70s. And now, of course, when we're seeing with the legislation around Shamima Begum's case, um, has just granted the state enormous power to deprive people of citizenship with absolutely no recourse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think thinking about um, virginity testing as a sort of uh, hinge between these two, between uh, the colonial and the attempt to f sort of uh, 
make a nation state out of Britain's uh, empire, I think is an interesting one. So virginity testing was a way that the British border regime could quote unquote check uh, that Asian women were really virgins and therefore really having an arranged marriage to a man in Britain. Um, This obviously turns on the idea that one would necessarily have to be a virgin according to the strict cultural mores of South Asians. Um, It's quite an extraordinary thing, I think, uh, that happens well into the 70s. So it seems to me that that way of of kind of turning uh, one's own conception of sexuality against someone else Mm. is really powerful. And I think that we can see and obviously we can hear the echo in that of the enforced uh, inspections of sex workers or people who seem to be sex workers. So, yeah, these kinds of fantasies of Asian women's sexuality have real material consequences. These are not merely uh, cultural tropes that we might see on television or in the newspaper headlines. They really actually impact legislation and legislation that affects a huge and growing number of people. And it it seems to me that that Shamima Begum's plausibility of being framed as like a bride rather than a child who's been subject to grooming, as we might understand uh, sort of a a white girl of a similar age, is very much bound up with this thing of like, well, you know, so what? She's 15. That's just how they do things. I think something that's made Shamima Begum's um, case such a site of nationalist obsession is precisely that when she speaks about why she went or what she's done in, in under Islamic State's rule, she says, I was just a housewife. And I think <laughs> that people find that incredibly uncomfortable, partly, I think, because it draws attention to something that we don't want to think about, which is really that in some ways the violence of Islamic State was not that different in some ways to the violence of statecraft elsewhere. That it, that the British state also asks that we think about the figure of uh, the Muslim woman as a housewife. So she's saying, yes, I was just a housewife. Um, and I very much understand and, and And I'm sympathetic to uh, this important response that says, no, she was a child and she was was groomed, which I think is absolutely the case. I think what's a bit missing from that is the involvement of the Canadian security services who knew about this and had their own agent in the field who was involved. It seems (laughs) much more intentional. Quite important (laughs) that needs to be kind of understood um, and, and talked about more seriously. But I think one of the problems with the story of... The, the kind of analysis that starts with with her being a child is that actually if she had gone when she was 18, she would still, I think it would still be important to defend that no one should have their citizenship stripped of them, no one should be made stateless. Mm. Uh, this is an incredible uh, flouting of international law that the British state is getting away with on the basis of making these claims about kind of deviant women and their dangerous sexualities and I think we need to be a bit more scrupulous in fighting, um, in, in making the argument on those terms. I think that the kind of role of, of innocence and the sort of shifting utility of different discourses around innocence is very kind of revealing here. Because, of course, when we think of the idea of the child's inherent innocence, of course, that's you know historically constructed, like all of these things. Um, but also the idea that, you know, a, a brown child would be 
would be a non-threatening entity, even if they have nothing to do with Islamic State, is also very much in contention here through uh, ideas like the Great Replacement. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to be really... I think it's interesting to watch the rise of abolitionist politics, which really teaches us that we should that this claim to innocence will always be used against us in the end. Mm. So I think it's important that we don't rely too heavily on it in moments of difficulty. I mean, I think there's a difference between an argument you make in a courtroom uh, in which sometimes that will have to be an argument that you wouldn't necessarily make in another context, and I completely support that, but that I think that we should be a bit careful and making claims about the innocence of children precisely because those are also claims that are being taken up by a kind of reactionary nationalist formation. I think that spectre of kind of non-white fecundity as a sort of threat to whiteness in this global sense is kind of very interesting because it doesn't seem to be a threat to just the nation state as it were. And it feels like there's something kind of telling about how the nation state has shifted as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Great Replacement uh, kind of conspiracy theory is a really good example of this because it is very much global and we see this tying together of uh, different policies, different national kind of policies in uh, for example, New Zealand or South Africa and then think the Old Dominions and then in Britain in the US. And some of that is, of course, brokered by digital technologies that have allowed for this kind of contagion um, of these ideas to circulate. Platforms like YouTube, very much part of that story. Um, and some of it is the absence of a kind of narrative that would allow for... Uh, the, the the kind of undermining of the question of, of state multiculturalism or of the multiculture by the war on terror has left a very big opening, I think. And I think that uh, white nationalists are really taking that space. I'd like to turn to this idea of of, of queerness and, and deviance, which are often kind of talked about uh, in the same terms, including by um, like certain queer theorists, right? And understandably, and I think in many cases, you know, correctly thinking about deviance as like a potentially radical act. But what I'm really interested by in your work is is how you kind of critique a sort of a kind of an oversimplified view of. Um, being deviant from like the nuclear family as something that automatically grants us some kind of like a, a privileged political radicality. Yeah, it's something that I found myself increasingly unnerved by. I suppose um, I think I think back to the kind of uh, two thousand and eight nine sort of period and think about things like gay shame in San Francisco, which was an attempt to push back on the sort of commercialization of pride and the way that was feeding in to forms of American exceptionalism. And I think that it's a bit dangerous the way that uh, LGBT people um, kind of claim this radicality still in the moment of where well, homo nationalism's kind of been and gone almost. Um, I think we need to be much more careful and I think we need to be a bit more serious about the way that, you know, the claim that we should abolish the family is a very interesting one, but I think the family's being abolished and I think it's capitalism that's doing it. And I think we should be a bit more uh, sort of conscious of that in some ways. So if it's not possible to have a nuclear household because it's simply impossible financially to do so, if forms of labour now necessitate living in like dormitory style accommodation and working for 14 hours a day. I think we need to be a bit more 
careful about claiming that being queer is the cutting edge of sexual deviance. I think that I'm not sure the state really cares if you're a homo anymore. And I think we need to kind of update our politics in line with that reality. So what would you say are those kind of frontiers of, of a kind of deviance that the state would see as a threat? Because you know, as, as you outlined, there are certain forms of like quote unquote deviance, which are very much wrapped into how sexual modernity is supposed to function anyway. Mm-hmm. But there, you know, there are sort of borders and fractures around this. I think one thing that's worth thinking about in in the moment we live in now is that the state, the British state functions almost entirely through neglect. All the bits of it that can still operate (laughs) are kind of sedimented from an earlier moment. So there are bits of the post-war welfare state that are sort of intact to a certain degree, but not really through their maintenance, only through the ways in which they are totally structurally central to the organisation of all of our infrastructure. So, you know, if you can still get a GP appointment, it's not because it's not for want of trying on the part of the Tories, I would say. (laughs) And I think we should, I think that the forms of, the forms of deviance that the state cares about are forms of non-productivity that it can respond to. So, being unemployed and hanging about outside means that you're very likely to be stopped for stopped and searched for example homeless people are very much at the forefront um, at the kind of of being understood to be deviant right much as they were much as the vagabond was 500 years ago and so I think that if you want to have a polyamorous setup in your house and go to your job as a as an architect no one cares state doesn't care (laughs) about you being non-monogamous it really doesn't mind what you're up to on that level state doesn't mind if you want to go and do snm and you want to film it and put it on the internet right that's changed the state the, the kind of powers that be do not care um what you're up to in your bedroom in that way and i think that there might still be forms of social penalty attached to certain kinds of behavior i think that's changing too uh but i think it's important that we don't assume that because we are doing things that don't fit in with a kind of um, nuclear household, that that is itself kind of radical. I actually think at the moment forms of sexual adventure are being um, marketed to us as uh, almost a kind of compensation for the dwindling access to other forms of social life. So you can't really, you can't like rent a house you can't buy a house, certainly. But you can have all the sex you want organised through the apps. Yeah, with your 18 flatmates that you have to rent with. Exactly. Maybe you can sleep with some of them. Maybe that will kind of <laughs> sort that out. I don't know. It, just, it seems to me a bit dangerous to still assume that we have that our sexual behaviour has some kind of radical potential. I guess the, the example that jumps out to me as sort of troubling as troubling that is, of course, um, transness, which is often constructed as somehow in allegiance with a sort of an imagined racial other and often mm-hmm. anti-Semitic conspiracies as well come alongside this um, in collaborating to dismantle the state, to weaken it. And that's, that weakening is understood as a kind of sexual weakening as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to really remember that this is contested right now. We're in the middle of a serious contestation over the meaning of gendered categories Mm. and that 
the economic organization that underpinned the making of the sexual dyad is, is shifting. So like, uh, to put that in kind of clearer terms, if we can't, if social reproduction can't be organized into the nuclear family because no one can afford the nuclear family, um, the male breadwinner family is a thing long gone mm. and the nuclear family no longer has its hold like divorce rates are very high there's no sense in which if you get married that's that's you done for life like that's that's an old story and it's not with us anymore so some of the structures that made gendering make sense are starting to falter that doesn't mean we don't have gender anymore it doesn't mean that transition suddenly easy or possible it's not at all but there's something i think is important about remembering that attempts to conserve the sexual dyad are working against, in some ways, some of the grain of other elements of the social formation. So I think this is a big contestation. And Britain's a bit of an outlier. Like the kind of the heat around transition and is really wild in Britain. Like the kind of moral panic is really off the charts. And elsewhere, forms of legislation are also being passed that would make gender recognition much easier, for example. So Britain's particularly bad for this. And the rise of organized transphobia here is really scary and really much very much part of a kind of reactionary nationalism but i do think that is very much contested by certainly younger people who i think in huge numbers think of being trans completely ordinary um and have a real feeling that there's an older generation who are kind of have absurdly violent views about a thing that they've started to take for granted so I think that we should be really serious about how dangerous reactionary transphobia is and sort of find ways to contest it but I do think we should remember that it is fighting a losing battle um or it's fighting a battle and it might not win it I don't think we should take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested in how, um, how, I guess, whether that queerness still plays a function in that kind of uh, sort of um, responsive and like reactionary small R uh, statecraft that you've outlined. Because you know, we talk about um, like vagabondage and like being outside, being indolent um, through the Victorian era in the in the metropole. Obviously, that is very much bound up with queerness, particularly policing like the movement of. Uh, who we would now understand to be gay men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think, you know, cruising's moved inside. So (laughs) we're warm now. It's fine. Yeah, there's not, I don't, I think that if there was still, I mean, there are still cruising grounds, of course, you can still cruise outside to some degree, but it's not really the way things are done anymore. And so I think that some of the ways in which casual sex and, and a public sex was a problem for the state was a problem was a thing that they wanted to kind of criminalize now that that's been to some degree domesticated through digital technologies it's not such an issue anymore mm. and actually a lot more people live lives that are closer to that norm like casual sex in some ways has become something that used to be much more concentrated in a kind of gay male subculture and elements of that subculture have started to drift outwards i think i think people are saying i want some of that too um talking of uh you nod to the idea that there is something i guess inherently potentially anarchic 
in sexuality that you call this a sort of the collaborative nature, which I love, of sexuality and the sort of the production of pleasure and the production of various possibilities of being together, as the actress says to the bishop. Um, can you, I guess, talk to us a little bit about, I guess, what those possibilities might be like? I think for me, there's the question of what would happen to sexuality if we didn't think about it as the site of our authentic selves. If we thought about it in a more kind of ludic way, um, if it wasn't a matter of orientation or identity. So I'm wondering about a kind of sexuality after identity, I suppose, uh, what it might be like to have sexuality without the determinants of of being one thing or the other um, and I think that in some ways the production of micro identities so like lots of people no longer thinking of themselves as you know you sort of see this online a lot people saying I'm a demisexual or a demiromantic or an aromantic all these kind of terms people are trying to find language to describe themselves mm. um, because the categories don't fit mm. but then I wonder if actually a kind of sexuality that wasn't so de determined by identity categories uh, in which gender could be a kind of repertoire of gestures and outfits that you could kind of play with in a more fluid way. Um, I think there's a possibility of sexuality without these kinds of identity factors being so determining. If I could persuade you to gaze into your crystal ball for a moment because you talked about these categories being in contestation alongside the sort of racial categories being in contestation and I guess my question is you know particularly in light of you know that sort of a, a violent coalition very much emerging around organized transphobia like where next for the British state in this process of of, of racial gendering mm -hmm. absolutely it's a really difficult one I think and I think we do live in a moment in which a lot is up in the air. Um, I think that the the brutal technologies of making race and making gender are still very much with us, right? So um, race making happens at the border. It happens in the North Sea. It happens in hospitals. It happens in rates of homelessness. It happens in rates of suicide. It happens all over the place, like the, the kind of brutal technologies of neglect, of carcerality, of persecution, all of these things are technologies that make race. But that the story of the good life that used to be the kind of counterbalance to that, the story uh, that in the American context has been called the wages of whiteness that sort of operate here, the wages of whiteness, I think, are rapidly diminishing. I think the wages of... Um, of being part of the social formation are kind of rapidly diminishing, I suppose. And I think that that story that if you pursue romantic love, the nuclear family, sexual adventure, like a kind of unique gender expression, the idea that that will be enough, I think that that story is no longer holding very much water in the face of our obvious degradation. So I'm not, I think that there, there's a kind of problem coming up here, which is that the the justificatory logic of the good life. I don't think the good life people feel is very available to them anymore, even at the level of like self-realization of like personal gain. Um, and so I don't, I think we have to work out what happens when 
the sort of brutal material legal processes that make racial categories are still very much with us and getting more virulent. Uh, while what the state actually pretends it can offer you, very limited at this point. And so one of the problems we face is that into that gap, all sorts of shady characters uh, are making making a tremendous living, right? So um, we see the rise of kind of all sorts of pyramid schemes that are attempting to offer people something in the place vacated by that old promise. We can see the you know, the rise of like weird self-help. We can see the rise of like all kinds of like esoteric practices. Um, all of that is an attempt to kind of fill that gap, I think. And that we need a better story for ourselves of what might be possible that's not so reliant on get-rich-quick schemes and other sorts of shady characters. And there, I think, is where we will have to leave it. Cesar Valadi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, this has been great. This has been Navarre FM. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again next time. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navaramedia.com forward slash support.